0: If we think about just sort of areas where people make mistakes, I think the biggest is technical risk reduction. You can have a great idea, and I see a lot of my uh, physician colleagues who have this, uh, and I see a mistake here generally where it's an innovative idea, but technical risk reduction is not on the radar at all. And so I think that idea comes inherent risk, and you have to reduce it early in the project, and the way to do that is to go through a series of prototypes, alpha, beta, etc.
1: Welcome to Medsider Radio, where you can learn from proven medtech and healthcare thought leaders through uncut and unedited interviews. Now, here's your host, Scott Nelson. Hey everyone, it's Scott. In this episode of MedSider Radio, I sat down with the CEO of Diality, Osman Kuar. After obtaining an MD from the University of Glasgow and an MPH from Johns Hopkins, Osman went on to become a board-certified nephrologist with a passion for serving dialysis patients. As the CEO of Diality, and his team are in the midst of creating a hemodialysis system that's versatile, mobile, intuitive, and cost-effective. Here are a few of the key things that we discussed in this conversation. First, one of the most common shortcomings of medtech companies is the lack of early-stage technical risk reduction. Reducing uncertainties during the initial phases of development can save you a ton of trouble down the road and give investors the confidence they need to support your venture. Second, the effort needed to build collaborative relationships with the right stakeholders is sometimes underappreciated. For example, one of the best ways to ensure a smooth regulatory clearance process and efficient clinical adoption of your product is to prioritize building alignment with the right people in the right organizations. Third, the team members and investors you bring on board can make or break your company's success, especially in its earlier stages. A great way to build a mission-driven, patient-centric group of people is to connect them with real-life patients and consumers. Okay, before we jump in, I wanted to point out one thing. Due to a technical issue with the recording, we had to cut the first 30 seconds or so of the audio. So after these short messages, we'll dive right into the discussion with Austin. Before we jump into this episode, I wanted to let you know that we recently released the second volume of MedSider Mentors, which summarizes the key learnings from the most popular MedSider interviews over the last six months or so. Look, it's tough to listen or read every single MedSider interview that comes out, even the best ones, but there are so many valuable lessons you can glean from the founders and CEOs that join our program. So that's why we decided to create MedSider Mentors. It's the easiest way for you to learn from the world's best medical device and health technology entrepreneurs in one central place. If you're interested in learning more, head over to medsiderradio.com forward slash mentors. Premium members get free access to all past and future volumes. If you're not a premium member yet, you should definitely consider signing up. In addition to every volume of Medsider Mentors, you'll get full access to the entire library of interviews dating back to 2010. This includes conversations with experts like Erica Rogers, CEO of Silk Road Medical, Dr. David Albert, founder of AliveCore, and so many others. In addition, as a premium member, you'll get to join live interviews with these incredible med tech and health tech entrepreneurs. Learn more by visiting medsiderradio.com forward slash mentors. Again, that's radio.com forward slash mentors. This was, I mean, gosh, 10 plus years ago now, but at the time we were, you know, we, we I worked with a fair amount of interventional nephrologists and it was always amazing that, um, Outside the U.S., you know, in-home dialysis was much more common. But yet, here in the U.S., it seems like it's taken a while to kind of get to this point where, you know, uh, physicians like like yourself are building companies to like make this possible. So, looking forward to kind of learning, digging into the technology and kind of uh, what you've learned along the way. But that, with that said, tell us a little bit more about like how how this idea came to be, and kind of what are the what are the key advantages to the to the not only the patient but maybe even the the physician community as well.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think they're both important. Uh, you know, our our promise, um, brand promise, is really um, freedom in, in choice. And DialT's technology really empowers um, dialysis um, and kidney care, um, healthcare professionals, to make really the best decisions for their patients. And that's really within the unique sort of provider pair space that exists right now, and we can get into the market and exactly how that model um, came to being and, and exists today. Um, Nephrologists really should be able to prescribe, in my opinion, what is best for the dialysis patients without having to really factor in where or by whom that, that prescription is administered. And they should do so knowing that it's going to help their practice thrive and grow well. We really conceive diality by the desire to provide more simpler dialysis technology and, and lower the burden, as I mentioned before, for the adoption of dialysis in the home. But you sort of Realized quickly there was other greater dynamics at work um, in the dialysis landscape. Home was just one example of a larger movement to decentralize dialysis delivery, which right now is very much brick and mortar centric, going to a dialysis center and and receiving dialysis. And there's a movement really to to counteract that. And we're seeing smaller, lower infrastructure dialysis clinics popping up. We're seeing high growth opportunities in non-traditional home, places like skilled nursing facilities. And, and COVID really accelerated this, but but a lot of it was even prior to COVID. And, and I think you know maybe we'll get into a bit of the history of how dialysis payer model um, has sort of changed over time. But we also saw an opportunity to enable what are now what we call value based care providers. Um, it's a new space in dialysis. It's been slowly coming out of models from cmmi but it's really people who rely on data analytics as a broadly focus on dialysis delivery and the total cost of care not only the dialysis space itself but also the the more broader space and so payment models are coming out that are more value-based really keeping the the nephrologist at the center of that model and empowering that nephrologist in a way they have never been empowered before and to leverage that model and improve the lives of patients um, impacted by kidney disease You know, dialysis is interesting because, you know, back in the 70s, Congress approved payment for dialysis as a disease specific uh, phenomenon. And it was really one of the first places that we did that. And and that was a very innovative um, decision by Congress. And since then, I think the payment models in this space have been very innovative and CMMI has been, I think, key in driving some of those payment models. Quality-based payments were were very early in dialysis, Um, something called ESCOs, which is a disease-specific accountable care organization. And now what we're seeing is really risk-based providers who are taking on risk for commercial payers and Medicare Advantage plans uh, likely coming, where total cost of care is much more important. And then driving that improved quality of care is also driving down cost simultaneously. So I think it's a win-win for everyone and every stakeholder
1: got it so not only are you uh, do you have the the challenge of developing a a pretty innovative uh product in a highly regulated space you know you're you're trying to uh you know navigate this monster challenge of working with you know payers uh payer relationships and reimbursement and uh, you know hopefully we can talk a little bit more, uh, more about that but sort of the nature of the beast and in operating in, in medtech you know lots of lots of challenges um uh not only on a, on a product level but you know working with all of these these various stakeholders to yeah
0: you know. i mean people yeah people talk about product market fit it's really important that you not only understand the product you're building but the market you're going to supply it to and that 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 fit is correct and i think it's it's really challenging and it's uh you know it's important to uh, think about where the market is going by the time your product is finished so you've got that correct fit for, for when you're coming out with your product
1: yeah i couldn't i couldn't uh, agree with you more and like one of the one of the kind of the the core thesis that we have at at big sky biomedical which is kind of an incubator it's got a hybrid between an incubator and accelerator that i'm, in, I'm involved with is actually like before we even remotely even consider taking on a project like we have to check those boxes, right? Like how is this thing that we, you know, we want to potentially bring to life, how, how is it going to be paid for, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yes, it has to work and it has to be clinically efficacious, but how is it, you know, who's going to pay for it? You know what I mean? And is it, is, it, is it reimbursed? And do you have like, you know, is that, is that kind of that that monster uh, of a process, right? In in, in uh, getting kind of payers and, and all of those, uh, the various stakeholders involved, are they, are they on, are they on board? So, um, so this should, yeah, this should I, be a fun, a fun conversation.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think medical devices change. The clinical efficacy is, is, is not, it used to be, well, you know, the primary thing you had to prove. And I think much more now it's much more about the market and reimbursement and your go mm-hmm. to market space than it used to be. And I think, you know, people, uh, embarking upon the journey that I am on need to understand that early. Um, and, right. uh, and particularly, I think it's important that you understand a very rapidly changing market, like we've seen in the dialysis space the last few years.
1: Got it. Got it. Yeah, totally great. one of the one of the comments um, that still sort of resonates with me is is uh, is based on a, a conversation I had with Nick Anderson. And if you're interested um, in going back and listening to that interview, I highly recommend. He's uh, he's probably one of my go to sort of health economics uh, consultants. And uh, you know, he he said of all the startups I, I work with all the time, he's like I rarely see someone that represents the payer community on the board. He's like, and I think it's just, a, it's oftentimes a, a huge misstep, whether or not you need someone like that on the board or just closely involved with the, the company in the earliest stages. He's like, I, I just it's a huge gap that I see often mm-hmm. with, with most med tech startups. So I think, uh, I think, uh, you know, if, if you're listening to this and you're running a, a med tech startup, which there's a lot of, a lot of those folks in, in our audience, uh, be thinking about that if you're not already for sure. So um, with that said Osman, um, let's let's talk a little bit before we kind of you know go back in time a little bit. Give us a sense for kind of where where the company is at in terms of uh, yeah. you know, development, regulatory <clears throat> potential commercialization.
0: Yeah so um, without getting too much detail we're, we're a company based in in Irvine, Southern California. We've been in product development really for the past four four and a half years now final stages of product development and looking at a submission to the agency uh, soon. The general regulatory uh, pathway for an analysis device is a 510k predicate pathway and normally separation on the user. So generally a 510k for a professional user, be that a nurse or a technician, and then a separate 510k for a non-professional user, such as a patient or a caregiver. And so those two are generally separated. And in between the two is generally a clinical trial for the non-professional user. So that, that's the pathway that we'd be taking to.
1: Got it. And so, just just to understand, both five ten k pathways, both for the professional user and the the consumer, the non professional user, both require clinical data, or is it just a <laughs> the, the
0: lot? There's normally bench data um, that is. Really well described for the professional user, um, what we call okay. our, clinical, our, our, our clinical submission, and then for the home user, it's uh, it's a clinical trial um, and human data that's required generally for safety and efficacy in the home, um, which I think is appropriate. We're always making sure when we um, move the medical device to the layperson's primary use that we're making sure we have, in essence, got usability correct that they can uh, utilize the device safely and effectively
1: got it got it sounds good um, all right we'll, we'll uh we'll kind of rewind rewind the clock a little bit and, and go back in time to, to to learn a little bit more about kind of the, the journey you've been on with diality so far but for those listening and want to jump right to the right to learning a little bit more about the technology um diality.com is the website so d-i-a-l-i-t-y.com d-i-a-l-i-t-y.com diality and we'll certainly link to that in the show notes for this interview as well so um let, let's start let's kind of go back in time you know four or five plus years ago I'd love to learn a little bit more about how you've gone about product development because it sounds like you're almost kind of you're close to the finish line, you know, fairly close to submitting to you know for regulatory clearance here. Talk to us about kind of what you learned kind of developing the alpha and, and beta versions of, of your uh, your device.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that if we think about just sort of areas where people make mistakes, I think the biggest is technical risk reduction. You can have a great idea, and I see a lot of my uh, physician colleagues who have this, uh, and I see a mistake here generally where. It's an innovative idea, but technical risk reduction is not on the radar at all. And so I think that idea comes inherent risk, and you have to reduce it early in the project. And the way to do that is to do, go through a series of prototypes, alpha, beta, et cetera, iterative improvements in each phase. Um, and if you don't do that early in the project, you'll lead to a product that will just not meet your career requirements. It'll be too complicated. It'll be too big. It'll be too expensive. And I think getting that iterative process going early is, is really, really important. I think software does that great um and I think hardware does that not as well and it needs to continue to do that um you know feasibility prototypes you answer answer a lot of fundamental questions about technology that you can't get with da- design and analysis and the first indication um whether we're going to hit our desired performance targets is is really from there and you know Design, build, test, learn cycles at that stage to get some quick answers, um, reduce the unknowns, reduce the uncertainties, give your investors some confidence. I think th- that's really, really important to do.
1: Got it. I, I love that framework around uh, you know how uh, uh, how can the team right the, the engineering team reduce the uh, the the, uh, the technical risk you know as early <coughs> as possible. And you know an interview I recorded recently with Derek Herrera, who's also you know, based here in, in Southern mm-hmm. California, runs Bright Euro. Great guy. You know, he he I, he actually uh, just recorded a, a second round, and he mentioned, um, you know, it's always it's always kind of a balance, right, in startups where you want to be, you know, optimizing for for I'm sorry, you want to be developing an innovative product, right, but always um, optimizing for sort of the 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 only the the necessary features, right, in the earliest stages in the first generation, because it's so easy to kind of jump to this kind of um, to, to to want to include like all of these, you know, potential, uh, potential benefits, but oftentimes your, your product ends up becoming, you know, bulky and bloated and leads to all kinds of development, uh, and technical risks, as, as you mentioned. So definitely a fine balance to, yeah,
0: <laughs> I do think it. that um- sometimes, I think sometimes, um, that happens because the wrong partner is chosen. You've got the wrong mm-hmm. investor, you've got the wrong team around you. And, um, and particularly I think investment pressure on the startup is to get, you know, get, get somewhere as quickly as possible, but, that iteration needs to be understood by your investors, and if you if you don't, uh, I think, tell that story well, uh, you get yourself in a bind. Um, I think the other area is definition of a problem statement, user needs. Um, that really allows the startup to build and prioritize the right features, like like we're talking about. And I think in our case, that user needs was was you know my my sort of forte to, mm-hmm. to sort of say this is what the market requires, this is where the market's going, and I think. Uh, making sure you have that market expertise um, is really important, like like Derek does as well.
1: Mm-hmm. And considering your, your your device is used in the in the in the home, did you primarily focus on you know human factors from a consumer standpoint, or did you get? I mean, obviously, as as a as a physician yourself, you sort of inherently understood kind of the the, the needs. But how much did you rely upon you know sort of consumer input?
0: Yeah, I mean, just as an organization, we're very much patient centric, and mm-hmm. so. You know, you know, employees pre-COVID in particular, we used to go to dialysis units, take them there, to they understood and met with patients. Mm. Um, we'd bring patients into the office at our all-team meetings to just discuss it. It used to be really key to our culture. It's been a little harder since COVID, but I think it's important that your team is mission-driven and enthusiastic about what you're doing. The only way you can do that is to connect them to the problem in the market, mm. and so I think that that's really key. So we've continued to do that as we've gone along. Obviously, there in the medical device space, there are more structured ways to do human factors to do some of the informative things. But I think in informal ways, you need to continue to inform your team at the same time.
1: Right. Hearing hearing kind of what you've sort of the, the way that you've gone about uh, involving patients reminds me of a, a discussion I had with Renee Ryan with, with Cala Health. You, you probably uh with her and she said um when we talked about this this concept she she said um one of the the creative ways that they um they were able to get patients involved pretty early on as they went from you know generation one to two of their of their device because it is it is it's it's a medical device right but it's it's very kind of consumer centric or patient centric and uh she said they opened up you know quote unquote cala clinics right where they they actually invited patients in you know for for treatments and it kind of served as a Almost what it sounded like as kind of a high. I'm not sure if they're still, they're still offering this. Mm-hmm. They probably are. Um, but I thought it was a, it was a really creative approach to, uh, to, you know, really, um, kind of going deep with, with patients and consumers, um, right. And, uh, and, and getting the <laughs> feedback.
0: Yeah. I think, you know, now we're hearing a lot more about patient centered design, right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, it's not been forefront for some time. And I think it's excellent conversations that are going on now in the medtech space about really making a design patient centered. And just like you say, people don't have enough. You know, um, payers on their board—they probably don't have enough patients connected to them as well. But <laughs> yeah. both of those are important.
1: It's true. Very good point. Um, so, so we, we talked a little bit about the the re- the regulatory approach. Um, you know, with uh uh with a device like uh, uh like you're developing at Diality, like when you think about kind of that that regulatory process in general, mm-hmm. especially you know considering it it requires clinical data. Looking back over the past maybe two to three years, are there some key lessons that you've you've learned with with respect to kind of the that you know navigating the the regulatory waters?
0: Yeah, I, I think um, my advice would be to be as collaborative as you can with uh, with the agency. I think that um, you know to their feedback through the, the formal pre-sub system or other ways to understand their current thinking and, and clarify your plans to move through the project and recreate a collaborative space between the two entities is, is really I think the key to success. And um, we have done that. We've had lots of interactions with the agency. And, and I think that's important. It gives you confidence. It de-risks your submission. Um, it gives you insight into current thinking, which may not be reflective in, in current guidelines. And, you know, we don't always have access to what people have done in the past. And so you don't always know what issues there is front and center of the FDA's uh, mind. And so I would just encourage as much collaboration as possible. And I think that sort of environment, I think, is responded to well on both sides of the table. And I I think it 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 really focuses everyone on what we're trying to do, which is improve the quality of care in in the United States. Got it.
1: Let's jump a little bit and, and circle back around to uh, to kind of this this um, what we kind of briefly touched on earlier, which is you know navigating the the, the payer landscape. You know, and you're you're dealing with this, or you're operating in an environment where you know there's there's definitely a trend or a shift, right, for dialysis to go from you know the traditional kind of dialysis clinic setting and and move it to the to the home front. But that comes with a whole host of you know challenges around who you know how's this going to get paid for yeah what what does that what does that look like and so kind of what in general can you talk to us a little bit about kind of your your approach because that's such a that's such a, a a difficult hurdle right to to kind of not only not only cross but just kind of manage manage through and so I guess if you had kind of uh you know if there was a group of other medtech entrepreneurs that had similar types of challenges right where they want to they want to develop a, a device that aligns with kind of this you know a, a a trend you know talk to us a little bit about kind of your, your approach and what you've learned.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think again, we've been we've been grateful to have such close um, and intimate knowledge of the market, and I think that if the market is changing, the pair environment is changing, and you're you're not you don't have your finger on the pulse, it becomes exceedingly difficult. I think um, in the dialysis space, there is a additive trend of value based care. Um, which I think you can still sell traditionally and you can uh, see see this new payer models as additive and how do you collaborate best with them. And again, you know, one of our core values is collaboration. So collaborating with these new value-based care providers, what is important to them, having those conversations early in the design process so you understand what you're developing has value to the new models that are coming, I, I think is important. So again, I think outreach and conversation, collaboration is going to be important, particularly in a, a changing payer model. Of course, there's formal ways to approach that, health economic outcomes research and things like that that you can do. But eventually, you want to start talking to real people who are going to buy your device and pilot it. And, and, and I think the earlier you have those conversations, relationships, the better.
1: Hey there, it's Scott. And thanks for listening in so far. The rest of this conversation is only available via our private podcast for MedSider premium members. If you're not a premium member yet, you should definitely consider signing up. You'll get full access to the entire library of interviews dating back to 2010. This includes conversations with experts like Renee Ryan, CEO of Cala Health, Nadeem Yared, CEO of CVRX, and so many others. As a premium member, you'll get to join live interviews with these incredible medical device and health technology entrepreneurs. In addition, you'll get a copy of every volume of MedSider Mentors at no additional cost. To learn more, head over to medsiderradio.com forward slash premium. Again, that's medsiderradio.com forward slash premium.